never heard this passage of scripture before in church, I bet, I bet, maybe you've read this before sometime, but in doing the narrative lectionary, this is what happens. And importantly for today, this is the only time in the course of this round of the narrative lectionary that we have a story about David. And knowing how important David is and was to the history of the people of Israel, that's kind of interesting. These are two stories, two different accounts, again, that you probably haven't ever encountered. So we're in for an adventure. And I'm also going to add a little bit more to the passage, so it makes it a little bit longer and a little bit better. So open your ears to God's word to you today. All the tribes of Israel came to David in Hebron and said, Here we are, your bone and your flesh are we. Time and time again in the past when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel into the fray. And the Lord said to you, It is you who will shepherd my people Israel, and it is you who will be prince over Israel. And all the elders of Israel came to the king in Hebron, and King David made a pact with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David as king over Israel. Thirty years old was David when he became king. Forty years was he king. In Hebron he was king over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he was king thirty-three years over all Israel and Judah. And the king went and his men with him to Jerusalem, to the Jebusite, the inhabited of the land. And he said to David, saying, You shall not enter here unless you can remove the blind and the lame, which is to say, David shall not enter here. And David captured the stronghold of Zion, which is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever strikes down the Jebusite and reaches the conduit and the lame and the blind utterly despised by David... Therefore, do they say, no blind man nor lame shall enter the house. And David stayed in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built round the rampart and within, and David grew greater and greater. And the Lord God of armies was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedarwood and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. And David knew that the Lord had set him up unshaken as king over Israel, and had exalted his kingship for the sake of his people Israel. And David took other concubines and wives from Jerusalem after coming from Hebron, and other sons and daughters were born to David. And the Philistines heard that David had been anointed as king over Israel, and all the Philistines came up to seek David. And David heard and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines had come up and deployed in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them unto my hand? And the Lord said, Go up, for I will surely give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-parazim, and David struck them down there. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like bursting of water. Therefore did he call the name of that place Baal-parazim. And they abandoned their idols there, and David with his men bore them off. And David and the whole house of Israel were playing before the Lord with all their might in song and on lyres and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, and Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had slipped. And the Lord's wrath flared up against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for reaching out his hand to the ark. 
and he died there by the ark of God. And David was incensed because the Lord had burst out against Uzzah. And that place has been called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord on that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David did not want to remove the ark of the Lord to himself in the city of David. And David had turned it aside to the house of Obed-Edom. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his house. And it was told to King David, saying, The Lord has blessed this house and all that he has on account of the ark of God. And David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And it happened when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had taken six steps that he sacrificed a fatted bull. And David was whirling with all his might before the Lord, girded in a linen ephod. And David and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord in shouts and with the sound of a ram's horn. And the ark of the Lord came to the city of David. And as the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, Mishal, daughter of Saul, looked out through the window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she scorned him in her heart. This is the word of the Lord. David is an epic figure in the truest sense of the word. He is great, one of the greatest characters of all of human history, with Michelangelo's rendering of him a fitting tribute. You might remember some of the highlights of his life. As the eighth and youngest son of Jesse, he was first called into service to play the lyre for King Saul, who suffered from bouts of depression. This talented shepherd boy found favor with the old king. Before long then, in a truly immortal encounter with the archenemy Philistines, he volunteered to step up to face Goliath, the giant warrior hero. After his dramatic and unexpected victory using his trusty sling, David begins his gradual rise to power. His ascent is long and complicated. He survives first as something of a freedom fighter, evading King Saul and consolidating his power base. He creates alliances of convenience where there were none before, and he embellishes his reputation as a leader. Somehow, in the midst of all of this, he continues playing the lyre and composing psalms and ballads, songs of praise, lament, and wonder. Significantly, David is the first biblical character drawn with all the deepest colors of human character, for better and worse. His adulterous affair with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who was off fighting at the front against the Philistines, provides us a view of a very fallible man who is undaunted by his own sin. He suffers the death of his son, born of this affair, with unsurpassed grief. In many ways, David was a Renaissance man thousands of years before the Renaissance happened. His rise to power seems to be just a matter of time, inevitable from the start. He may well be larger than life, as they say, but his story is still very human, and we can learn some important lessons from him. One reason David has captured the hearts of so many people was his keen sense of vision and his ability to see things that others did not. 
Throughout his life, David was able to see perspectives that others couldn't begin to imagine, conjuring up solutions and possibilities from out of nowhere. David is one who did not follow normal paths. When we look at him from our present distance, you might call him the Teflon King. And history has continued to treat him far more kindly than he treated many others. There is no doubt that David loved the Lord. His psalms are plentiful evidence of that. But there can also be little doubt that at times he loved himself even more. Rabbi David Wolpe notes the irony that David, whose name itself means beloved, was loved by many. And yet the scriptures rarely describe David as truly loving anyone himself, particularly his wives. Keeps a very strange distance between himself and his wives. His wives serve their purposes and his sons and daughters as well. But he always seems to look for himself above all else. David is a survivor. There might be reasons for this particular psychological profile, as the rabbis has speculated for centuries, and this could be a good adult seminar workshop, actually, getting into David's life a little bit, because he's been examined many, many times over. I remember once doing a Bible study about the life of David, and in the end hearing a particular comment from someone that many could agree with. What I like about David is that if God could love him, then surely God can put up with me. Now, I don't know exactly where that statement sets the bar for us in terms of our meeting God's expectations, but I think it's a helpful and realistic way to take into view the life and works of this one of God's anointed. What was unique about David, unlike other Jewish notables like Moses or Jonah or Jeremiah, is that David had no unease about his suitability and readiness for his mission. He was self-confident from the start. What did him in eventually was dismissing that he was a link in the chain of God's people, believing himself more unique than he really was. David's fatal flaw was his hubris, which led him to think that he could wrangle a solution out of any situation, independent of relying on the mercy and guidance of the Lord. His independent streak wore very thin. And that will do anyone in every time. Now, the two readings that we have are representative selections of the ups and downs of David's reign, and perhaps lessons for us in our lives as well. It might seem like a stretch for us to find ways into which we can relate to either of these two events in our own lives, but I think it's worth having a try because that's what a sermon is supposed to be about anyway. So our first verse recounts one of the truly high points of David's life, when he is acclaimed king over all of Israel. This comes after long and hard struggles, many sleepless nights, careful strategizing, and skillful carrying out of plans. What is left unsaid is that though David is acclaimed king, he does not accomplish this on his own. Importantly, even before he is called king, he is called shepherd and prince, both terms that imply more of a lateral, collaborative connection than one of solo superiority. David is a link in the chain rather than an independent means of transmission or a key. 
He is not an independent agent, but has many others to rely on as one who has been anointed to lead. So I wonder what this could possibly mean to you. Were you ever elected a class officer in school, a treasurer, a club secretary, a section leader in your school band? What role of authority have you ever been given or have asserted for yourself, perhaps as an older sibling or a parent or even a caretaker? To whom were you then responsible? I think that's a good question. Because as we ascend to those heights of authority, we are then responsible for those who have elected us as well. We just don't sit on top of the totem pole alone. There's always responsibility underneath. David's story is impressive, and his charismatic leadership is the key to Israel's survival. But his Achilles heel was forgetting that everything he had didn't just magically appear, though it might have seemed that way. Those who came before him sacrificed to put him in the place that he finally achieved. David was a link in the chain, not the key, just as we. Now, the second story in this passage is a one of a kind in Scripture. I would bet a lot nobody's heard this part of the story before in church. You hear about the touching of the ark? I know nobody's ever heard that in church. It is all about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, the central symbol of the Israelite faith, with two winged cherubim on top, containing the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments, some manna, and Aaron's rod, that was what was supposed to be inside the Ark, has a very peripatetic history. At different times, the Ark moves from place to place, from wherever it was in the desert to the lands of the Philistines, eventually it makes its way to Jerusalem, to the city of David. At times it's captured by the Philistines, at times it's captured back. Now in this account, we finally have its arrival once and for all in the city of David. And upon its arrival, calamity happens. One of the oxen pulling the cart that bears the ark, stumbles, and a man named Uzzah, fearing for the ark, reaches out and grabs it so it doesn't fall. Instantly, God strikes him down. Makes for a great sermon. Maybe. So what do you make of this story? Some have blamed it on the incorrect means of transporting the ark, that it should have been carried by poles affixed on rings on the shoulders of the Levites, As it's described in the book of Numbers, they weren't doing it the way it was supposed to be done. Others see the box as charged with some divine energy that can't be touched, like Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm sure that's where he got the idea. He didn't come up with that himself. Of course, they didn't really open the ark in 2 Samuel. Perhaps you could take note of the insights of Rabbi Koch, a scholar and mystic, who points out, that Uzzah should have tried to steady the oxen and not the ark. It was the oxen that made the mistake. I don't know. David's reaction, there's all kinds of conjecture about these things. David's reaction, though, is clear and immediate. He keeps his distance and strategizes. He is going to step back from this and get a sense of 
what's going to happen? What can he possibly do with this? He doesn't set to mourning about Uzzah's life, but he's going to sit back and strategize. For three months, he lets the ark sit. And then, eventually, presumably, and it doesn't say this, but presumably, with Levi priests carrying the ark the right way, it arrives once and for all in the city of David. And David, wearing a silken ephod, which is a ceremonial sleeveless gown, he dances a Mick Jagger dance. He goes wild, rejoicing once and for all. Again, we don't know quite what to do with this. I don't think sermons are regularly preached on David's wild dancing. The Protestant reformer, John Calvin, gives us a place to start. A pretty stodgy place, not surprising. He writes, Public joy, as David expressed, should always be as before the Lord, with an eye to him and terminating in him. Otherwise, it is no better than public madness and the source of all manner of wickedness. That's the kind of thing you expect to hear about David's dancing, right? Well, I think I'm going to go in a little different direction. The Hebrews had no separate word for body or soul. They did not see body and soul as split. The word for body and soul is nephesh, and it's just one altogether. Most biblical translators often translate the word as soul, which for us ends up being a very disembodied notion, a holiness without flesh and bone. We can celebrate our joy sitting very still. Thank you very much, we Protestants. That's who we are. David celebrated with all, body and soul, the whole nephesh. I say this is where David finally gets it. This is where he finds his connection to God. He can celebrate because he now knows that he is a link. He is one who has helped bring this ark back He is one who now has a heritage all the way back to Moses. This eighth son, this nothing son of Jesse, has now claimed his rightful link to be with God's people for now and forever. And the bringing of the ark is his realization of that. He is part of immortal history, and he can't resist dancing. Thankfulness comes over him and utter joy. He has to dance. His wife, Michelle, doesn't get it. And that's another story. (laughs) And I think that's brought out to emphasize what it is that David is celebrating. That he realizes what connection there is. And with everything that he has, he celebrates. His example is worth remembering. Seeing the connection between God's blessings from the past brought to the present makes a difference for him. Feeling gratitude and not expressing it is like wrapping up a present and not giving it away. So I think David's dance for us is worth remembering, not just for the wild celebration that it was, but for what it means to us, that it is an expression of a connection between past and present a link in the chain of life. 
Earlier this week, I celebrated with my family the life of my aunt, my Aunt Sue, who years ago played the piano in church, in Sunday school. There were a collection of us family and other friends who were in her Sunday school class. And it wasn't part of the church service, but it was part of the reception. We sang some kind of Sunday school songs that we hadn't thought about for years and gave thanks for her life. She made a huge difference. The pastor who's at my home church now was in one of her Sunday school classes a little bit later on. She made a huge difference in everybody's life. That's to say that church... I think is a unique place where generations mix and it is one of the few places in our society anymore where we do cross generations that we are a place that is on the continuum of the chain of life from the youngest to the oldest and everybody in between we are the connecting link that God gives us to celebrate and to recognize and to share This week to come, we here in Baltimore and around Maryland will be celebrating the life of one who was also a connecting link, who I feel important to mention today, Elijah Cummings. His oft-quoted line, I think we'll hear many times this week to come, fits with this. The children are the living messengers we send to the future that we will never see. What that means for me is that our lives surely will make more of a difference than we know. And the contributions that we make now to the present will make a difference for many in the future who we do not know. So our lives and our contributions are important, not just in our eyes, but in God's everlasting eyes as well. So what is that thing for you to celebrate? What are you living for that is bigger and greater than you are? If you've forgotten what that is, today might be a time to reconsider. And as you reconsider, just look around, because you'll see the people where those connections begin to take place. This is the place where those connections happen. This is the house of God. This is the place where God blesses us to be God's people, to seek and to share and to serve in Jesus' name.